0: Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me as always is Vincent M. Wales. And speaking of Gabe and Vince, do you want to interact with us, suggest topics, comments on the show, and be the first to get updates? You can do so by joining our super secret Facebook group at psychcentral.com slash FB show. Then as always, we brought along guests, didn't we?
2: Yes. But first I think you need to reevaluate the definition of super secret,
1: super secret, because unless you listen to our show, you don't know about it. Mm. It's just for us. And it's on Facebook. Yes. And not about us. (laughs)
2: That's fair. All righty. So today we have two folks with us, Rebecca Williams and Julie Kraft, uh, who have a new book out called The Gift of Recovery, 52 Mindful Ways to Live Joyfully Beyond Addiction. And ladies, I believe that came out just uh, earlier this month. Is that correct? That's
3: right. June 1st, officially. Yay!
2: Yeah.
3: Congratulations. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Ben, thanks for having
4: us on the show.
2: Could you tell us a little bit about yourselves?
3: Sure. I'm Julie Kraft. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist here in California uh, with a background in dual diagnosis intensive outpatient programs uh, that's for recovery from addiction and mental health simultaneously. And I also work in a private practice here in San Diego.
4: Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm a clinical psychologist here in San Diego, California, and I've been in the VA system working as a staff psychologist and a program director for 20 years. That's two zero. (laughs) And and I also have a private practice in town. And with Julie, we've been working on writing for over 10 years. We have a wonderful writing relationship and friendship. And uh, our first book, Mindfulness for, for Addiction, was our first go at writing together and this is our second book the gift of recovery so we're stoked to um talk about it
1: well very good it sounds like the partnership must be working out if you're on to book two
4: (laughs) yeah it's been it's been wonderful actually uh it's getting better and better the way we interact is that uh she sends me work and i edit it and i send her work and she edits it This time around, we're writing about mindfulness, and every time I read her work, I relaxed. Uh, (laughs) And it was a wonderful writing experience this time.
1: Well, very cool. Thank you so much. So let's talk about the book a little bit. I've got the entire blurb in front of me, but I'm not going to read it all. You'll have to go to Amazon and read it for yourself. But the first paragraph is, if you are recovering from addiction, the gift of recovery offers quick, in-the-moment tips and tricks to help you cope with daily stress and stay firmly on the path to wellness. With this gentle, easy-to-use guide, you'll learn how to navigate relationships, take time for self-care, and build a mindful, sustainable, and joyful recovery. So just reading that paragraph, a couple of things immediately popped to mind. One of them is that it sounds remarkably easy to do, and I know that addiction can be very, very serious. So how do you sort of uh, explain that out? Because I don't think what you're saying is, hey, buy our book and the horrors of addiction are, are over. Um, but it will help you with these things. Talk on that a little bit.
3: Sure. I I totally agree. Recovery from addiction is, uh, you know, not an easy process. It's certainly going to be a lot of work and there's a lot of challenges and obstacles. uh, Waiting is certainly an early recovery. Uh, What we hope this book will do is to kind of simplify and make easy some concepts that are just going to make that road a little bit Smoother. Um, so, um, using mindfulness practices and simple exercises to just kind of exhale some of that stress and really, um, you know, cope on a day to day basis in a way that's going to facilitate recovery.
2: Okay, thank you. How did you decide to take mindfulness and apply it to the topic of addiction in the first place?
4: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Mindfulness, as you guys know, have been around for I don't know thirty years. I think John Kabat-Zinn brought it to University of Massachusetts, among other places, uh, working with people who were actually um, having medical conditions, and I think he noticed and he did research on the improvements people were having. So, a lot of other folks along the, across the country, a lot of researchers were adding mindfulness to other things like depression, anxiety, autism, you know, and, and noticing people were actually getting better. Mindfulness is just an ability to be in the present moment breathe and focus on breathing and decreasing judgment of yourself and your thoughts. So it sounds simple, as you said, but it actually for addiction, it's extremely powerful because folks who are in recovery, early recovery from addiction, their minds are kind of frayed and frazzled Their nerve endings are frazzled. And I think that using mindfulness kind of smooths over the tension, the anxiety, uh, the pressure and folks can stay in the present moment and breathe and relax and not have to focus on cravings and triggers for further addiction.
1: Let's stay on the topic of mindfulness for a moment because to many people mindfulness immediately conjures up images of like you know hippies and incense and and uh, you know new age uh, you know things like that And, and I feel that mindfulness has gotten a bad rap The question that I have specifically is, does mindfulness have like scientific backing or evidence? What exactly is mindfulness and what evidence do we have that it isn't just some, you know, new age babble?
3: Yeah, the science of mindfulness is actually becoming more and more prevalent, uh, which I think is the reason we're hearing even more about mindfulness than we used to. So actually, Time Magazine just came out with a special magazine uh, recently called The Science of Happiness. And uh, it's no coincidence that in the Science of Happiness magazine, there's several articles on the use of mindfulness. And that's because the science is really backing it up. Just a few years ago, there was a book that came out called The Buddha's Brain, that really was able to map the changes in the brain that occur through regular meditation practice. So now that we have these unbelievable brain scans that have been developed through science, we can actually see that people who meditate are having fundamental changes in the brain structure that help them to remain more focused, more calm, and even more compassionate. So this science now backing up mindfulness has really legitimized it outside of the the hippies, as you say, um, and into corporate America, into the Marines. They have a program now in the military called MFIT. Uh, which is mindfulness fitness training in an attempt to see. They did some initial studies to see whether mindfulness would actually prevent things like PTSD in combat veterans, and they've had such success that they got a two million dollar grant, I believe it is, to go ahead and, and research mindfulness further for the military. So it's definitely far ranging these days.
1: Excellent, excellent. I know that one of the tenets of mindfulness is sort of this idea of radical acceptance, and everything is as it is supposed to be. Uh, I I personally don't know that I can accept that everything is is the way it's supposed to be. However, the idea of being in the moment uh, is very powerful for me living with bipolar disorder because so often I'm like, well, I feel sick, so I'll be happy later. Um, But of course, that doesn't do anything for me right now. Am I explaining sort of the benefits of mindfulness correctly using myself as an example there? That's
4: beautiful. Yes, live in the moment in the present moment. The the real important piece that I think people get stuck on is without judgment. You're living in the moment, and then the little extra piece, which is kind of the most important part, is without judging yourself for whatever reactions, feelings, frustrations that you may have in the present moment. So that's the tricky part. So if we can jump from being in the moment to this next little island
3: of without judgment, that is where things land really nicely.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
3: Yeah, I think that non-judgmental awareness of our experiences is a really big part of acceptance and that sense of kind of it is what it is. And it's important to remember that, you know, it is what it is doesn't mean that I'm enjoying it all that much, doesn't mean I wouldn't prefer a different situation, Um, but it is this acceptance piece because, Resistance to the present moment, resistance to what is happening right now, really just aggravates the situation. So if we can take resistance out of it and go, mm, I'm having that kind of a moment. Uh, I'm noticing myself feeling stressed. I'm noticing tension in my body. or I'm noticing anger. Okay, that's where I'm at right now and kind of give some acceptance and understanding to that moment It's a lot different than, um, oh gosh, I'm tense, oh no, that's gonna make me nervous, oh no, that means I'm gonna panic, oh no, what are things gonna look like if I start to panic? That's a, you know, that's a resistance state and we can see how quickly things could escalate. Whereas if we can just relax into what is, that mindful state is just a lot more productive, it just makes more sense.
2: One of the things that Gabe and I deal a lot with in our activism is stigma in the mental health realm. We know, for example, the truth about violence and and mental illness, but the general public has a kind of skewed view of that. When it comes to addiction situations, we know that a lot of people are very judgmental of those who have an addiction problem. So when you say that the person with this addiction issue needs to be non-judgmental towards themselves, how hard is that when, when a lot of society is exactly the opposite?
3: Yeah, I think it certainly is a challenge really for all of us to be accepting of ourselves um, and certainly when our culture stigmatizes something that we are living with. So that is certainly a concern and self-compassion is really something that we talk about throughout the gift of recovery, uh, partly for that reason. Just cultivating self-acceptance and self-compassion is such an important part of recovery um, and why we focus on it so much. You know, I will say I, in some ways, you know, working in the field of addiction, I also work with the loved ones of addicts and they really have their own challenges, obviously, severe challenges in acceptance. In some ways, I feel like the addict maybe has a leg up in understanding that they tried to stop, that they wanted to stop, that they felt You know, a compulsion to continue using. um, And that really, the choice, the sense of choosing it was taken away from them. Whereas loved ones sometimes look at them and go, You're just, you're choosing to hurt our family. You don't care. Uh, And it's really hard for them to come from a place of compassion and let go of the stigma uh, because it's so hard to understand what's happening from the outside. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com.
1: Let's talk about how the book then works. Is the reader expected to go through the book like page by page? Are there exercises in it? Is it a course or a study guide? Should you work with a a therapist while you do it? How does the book fit into beating addiction?
4: A wonderful question. And the answer is all of the above. The the way I think of of the gift of recovery is twofold. One, it's a, a gift for a person in recovery to give themselves As they're healing, as their brain is healing in recovery. So, the person who chooses it for himself or herself goes through the book week by week, even day by day. We also have exercises for every single chapter, and there are 52 chapters, meaning there are 52 weeks of the year that you can play around with this. So, you can go through and each week in order, or you can actually pick a topic, for example, stuck emotions, emotions that are too intense and you need help with that, or if you need help with self-compassion, you can go direct to that chapter, read it for the day, and hopefully do the small practice that we have that goes along with it. In addition, what we really like is that we have an affirmation for every single day of the week, and that's 365 affirmations in our book to actually just land in, relax, and read the affirmation in the morning, read it at noon put it in your phone, put a post-it note on your mirror, and just reconnect with yourself through an affirmation. So we're really proud of those affirmations. There's also downloadable mindfulness exercises, I think we've got about 10 of them. So it's a little bit for everybody. It's also phenomenal if you're working with a therapist and your therapist and you To people who are using it in group for addiction recovery. And our other book, Mindfulness Workbook for Addiction, has been used in prison also. So it's really far reaching in terms of how you use the book and who uses the book.
1: That's very, very cool. Thank you so very much. One of the questions that I have is we're we have a lot of experts on this show, and we are also big on lived experience. What prompted you to write this book? Do you have I, I'm trying to avoid saying are you an addict or a previous addict, but do you have personal experience or is this just a professional endeavor for the two of you?
3: Yeah, I, mean, I think both of us have been touched by the world of addiction. And, and like most people, I, I really don't think you can escape addiction having had some kind of an impact on your life. You know, And there's, there's a lot of different ways that that can take place, obviously, through a, a family member, a loved one, and uh, you know all various forms of addiction. So yes, I, you know, I think it is obviously a personal topic to both of us.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: That's how I began the actual journey, and uh, when Julie was a MF marriage, family, and therapy trainee with me, and I really saw a spark in her to, because she was so passionate about her clients, and I was passionate about trying to figure out how to package uh, the idea of loss and addiction because I have lived experience with a family member who had significant loss and became addicted and struggled tremendously. So I wanted to package this and get it out there, but I needed someone to work with. So between Julie and I, we actually, with our clinical experience and our supervisory experience, our VA experience, uh, we actually were able to package this product and make it user friendly. So it's it's a love of mine to really touch someone else with, with addiction. It's my favorite thing to work with, with addiction recovery. And you know, dual diagnosis, mental health recovery, I believe there's such hope and wonderfulness that happens. And that's, that's what the second book is about, to really kind of tap into the hope, uh, the joy that, unfortunately, I was not able to see within my family the, the second phase, which is recovery. So that's why we have such a strong connection with this.
1: Thank you so much for your candor and answering these questions. You know, a, a lot of times people talk about, you know, addiction and mental illness, and we tend to talk about it from the aspect that we're somehow insulated from it. And one of the things that the Psych Central show tries to do is to show that, you know, listen, this impacts all of us. Uh, e- even if you don't have addiction issues yourself or mental health issues yourself or a mental illness yourself, it could be your loved ones, your friends, your coworkers. And this is This is valuable for all of us to understand and hopefully it doesn't impact us in major, major ways uh, like it certainly has uh, Vin and me, but it could and we just certainly want to get that conversation out there. So thank you for your honesty. We really appreciate that. That being said, I think a lot
2: of people don't realize either just how common it is for mental health problem And a substance use problem to go hand in hand. Can you speak to that a little bit, please?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's extremely common um, and it goes in both directions, right? So, uh, substances can induce mental health concerns significantly. So, in the case of alcohol, for example, I remember one of my professors saying if she was going to, if she was an evil genius and she wanted to invent something that would cause depression, she would have invented alcohol. I always thought that was really interesting. And then, of course, mental illness and an attempt to cope with mental illness, substances often come into the picture. So they are intricately linked. The good news is for a lot of people who are suffering from depression or extreme anxiety, um, a lot of the mental illness actually lifts when the substances are uh, removed. They've seen large percentages of the population who come in for treatment from addiction see their mental illness symptoms actually alleviate. So they were so tied into the substances that they then go away. So that's very hopeful and optimistic.
4: Yeah, the, the other piece is the, like you mentioned earlier, the family piece. If someone in the family is recovering, the family system actually starts feeling better. Sometimes they feel worse at first. It's not always, you know, bunny rabbits all the time. But after there's some time in recovery, the family also heals and the family gets well. So if a family member is feeling depressed because of someone using substances, it's rough. And so we want to convey that there is hope for the family when someone starts to recover from drug or alcohol addiction. It's really a family affair.
1: Thank you so much. Is being stuck in the cycle of addiction because of a lack of self-awareness? Are people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol are they not aware of it? It really seems like we understand more than they do, but I, I have to imagine that's probably not the case.
3: Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. And sometimes it is. And I think that's just this amazing thing that our mind knows how to do called defense mechanism. You know, where something's really scary and we just can't possibly deal with seeing it clearly, it just kind of gets fuzzy or even blacked out, right? Just blocked from our awareness. Um, So a lot of people do feel that they are just, you know, choosing something that feels cool or feels right or is helpful to them and they, you know, can really kind of ignore some of the consequences or convince themselves it's gonna be okay, convince themselves that it's something they can stop whenever they want to. People can really believe that for a long time. And then sometimes they are aware that it needs to change. But I'm sure, you know, if anyone listening took a look at something in their life that they feel like really needs to change right now, something that, you know, I need to start exercising or I need to eat less sugar or have less caffeine, and they really felt like that was important to kind of ask themselves or ask yourself, listener, like, How quickly do you change that? Did you just decide and then change it? Or do you find that it's really kind of difficult to get yourself into action? So you're aware that it needs to change, but the change doesn't just follow right from there necessarily. So it's kind of a mix of things.
4: Yeah, I would. I agree. And I would add to that my experience working with clients who are in recovery is that they're super hypersensitive. Their antennas are up all the time, and they are noticing everything, almost, there's no filter, like there, too much is coming, too much information is coming in, the teacup is full, what do we do now? So part of the journey is self-awareness, and that's why the mindfulness kind of comes back in, is that it's okay to have the experience of noticing things, but you don't have to react to everything, you don't have to have an opinion about everything, because there's too much, too much information coming in. It's like nerve endings are out there all the time. So if, if we can teach folks mental illness, mental health recovery, or addiction recovery to kind of smooth down the nerve endings a little bit so so they're not as sensitive to everything, I do think that's one of the ways to, to be well for all of
1: us. Excellent. Thank you so very much. We know that addiction can leave a lot of trauma in its wake. People have trouble forgiving themselves. Family members have trouble forgiving their, their, their other family members. Addiction can be very traumatizing to just in entire family structures. Is there something in this book that helps with that? I mean, how do you forgive yourself or how do you forgive somebody else when, you know, a, a addiction just really takes control? I mean, how do you let it go?
4: Wow, that's my favorite question so far. As a psychologist, I first have to forgive myself. I work with clients, they're struggling, my days are full, at the end of the day, my journey is to put my hand on my heart and forgive myself for the struggles of the day, choosing a tough profession, and just embrace the idea that I'm able to forgive myself. Uh, once I have that foundation, I'm able to work with clients and others about how to forgive themselves. It's not easy. It, there's always a, there's always a fight back, a push back whenever I even say the word forgiveness, self forgiveness. People are like, not me, not today, no thanks. You must be thinking about somebody else. So we first put a toe in the water. What would I, you know? I would say, what would it be like if you forgave yourself? or going out and using, or whatever the problem is. And after we get past the pushback, I have them lean back in the chair or the couch and just close their eyes for a moment and imagine what it would feel like to forgive yourself. And usually, nine times out of ten, it's emotional. And there's usually tears. And that's good. I feel like that's a breakthrough. So that's the beginning part of self-forgiveness. It's an emotional journey. There's stops and starts. Once you get it, you can't unget it. It's pretty powerful. So I start with myself, then I work with the client, and then we keep circling back around to forgiving, you know, potentially forgiving other people, but cer- certainly starting with self-forgiveness. And it's a practice. It is not gonna get fixed today. We practice it frequently. And the book helps a little bit with just kind of reminding us that it's a journey it's not gonna it's not gonna get resolved in
3: one session or or one chapter.
2: Julie really have anything to add to that?
3: Yeah, I was just thinking about um being patient with loved ones who aren't ready to forgive you yet and are still feeling really angry and distrustful of someone who's been addicted and, and is just starting to recover. A lot of my clients in recovery feel like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm doing the hard work. I'm recovering. Why won't the family just forgive me, trust me, you know, and, and give me the good stuff again? And you know, every addict is entitled to trust as they develop it and to all the love and support that a family can give. But sometimes we all have to be a little patient as the family starts to come around and can really, you know, can trust that the recovery is going to continue.
1: Yeah, I agree with that a lot. It, it's, it, it really resonates with a lot of people in our community, this idea that we want to be forgiven now, but there may be a reason that we have to wait on it and we should just be hopeful and, and give our family time. Yeah, so thank you very much for speaking on that. I appreciate it.
2: I've always struggled with the very concept of self-forgiveness. I mean, I understand cutting yourself some slack when you've when you've screwed up when you've made a bad decision or something. But when you've done something that hurts another person, I just, to me, self-forgiveness doesn't even make sense in that category. How do I get past that?
3: That's a great question. I, personally, I like to look at like the function of, of the kind of um, – self-loathing or, or being hard on the self because it if it's beneficial and it's something that kind of maybe helps us remember our values and kind of points me towards, okay, this is obviously something that's really important to me. And it's this example, I'm going to hold it in my mind and be frustrated with myself around it. So I never forget, I don't know, maybe it serves some kind of a purpose, but if it's not serving a purpose, and it's harmful to us in some way, and keeping us from moving forward, and that's something I would want to evaluate. I would always, with a client, look at, is this serving you? Is this helping you move forward in a positive direction? Or is it holding you back? If it's serving you, great. If it's not, let's look at it. You know, maybe it's time to let it drop. You know, and to me, the self-forgiveness piece and the self-acceptance piece really does allow us to move forward. A lot of us have this idea that if we beat ourselves up enough, we won't make mistakes again, or we'll be perfect, or uh, maybe we, we use that beating ourselves up to try to motivate us. But all the studies show that motivation uh, actually comes more from self-love than it does from self-loathing. So, so can we just, like Rebecca said, kind of dip a toe into that space, just experiment a little bit with how would it feel to really forgive ourselves? Would that maybe open up some doors?
2: Hmm. Okay. Well, I'll give some thought to that.
1: Thank you so much. We really appreciate you both being on the show. Um, can, I'm assuming that your book is on Amazon. Can you tell us the name again? And is there a website for the book?
4: Sure. The name of the book is The Gift of Recovery. It's by myself, Rebecca Williams, and Julie Kraft with a K. Um, and it is on Amazon now. It just came out June 1st newharbinger.com is our publisher and it's on that website also and we have a website that is in development but it's 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 up and running it's called mindfulnessworkbook.com and i'll be adding you know this podcast and others to the website so that people can listen there also
1: wonderful we are very flattered to be on that website and we of course wish you the best of luck with your book and thank you for being on the show
4: thank Thank you for having us
1: You're very, very welcome. All right, everyone, remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private, online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash Central. Remember, they sponsor the show so they help keep the lights on. We will see everybody next week.
0: Thank you for listening to The Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohol, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com.